Uh, welcome back to Building a Fire. My name is Dr. Austin Shane, sports chiropractor in Scottsdale, Arizona. With me, as always, badass strength coach in Denver, Colorado, Alex Friedman. Today, me and Alex went to a seminar recently. We went to DNS, or Dynamic Neuromuscular Stabilization Strength Training 1. Uh, it was done by Dr. Rich Olm, Dr. Mike Rontala, and... Uh, Jacob, whose last name I'm not even going to attempt to Jacob. butcher. Jakob. Yeah, Jakob uh, from the Czech school. Alex, it was your first DNS course. I know we talk about it all the time on here, what DNS is, but how did you how did you like the concepts of DNS? I like the concepts of DNS uh, a lot. It was super in-depth, um, and it really uh, reaffirmed that the, the my model of movement or that the model of movement we follow, um, it was in line with the DNS. Uh, it just dove a lot deeper into the postures, positions, um, and actual kind of alignment that I, I typically over overlook, right? I'm not all the time looking at individual uh, spinal joint angles or looking at um, the term they kept using was uprighting of the spine. Like, you know, to me and for my, my strength coach brethren, I feel like a flat back is a flat back. Right. And so it's like, as long as we're not deeping into some steep lumbar flexion or super uh, hyperextension, then we're looking pretty good. So I enjoyed getting the, the deep dive look at a lot of the postures, a lot of the movement um, principles in there. But I think that was the biggest takeaway was the principles and uh, really kind of seeing what ideal movement looks like. Yeah. I mean, what I tell everybody about DNS is it's just a lens. It's not a, it's not a step-by-step -step system. It's not a cookbook. Um, it's, it's what you can use with your eyes and with your hands to help the athlete or patient or who, or just client in front of you move a little bit better and more efficiently, which I think is the key word is efficiently is it is much more efficient to say a major DNS concept is trunk expansion. It is a lot more efficient to stabilize your spine with trunk expansion than it is to ratchet your low back into hyperextension and use your outermost muscles to stabilize the spine. If that endurance or if that uh, efficiency is going to carry over into sport, then that's going to have high yield in a sport like MMA where you need to be as efficient as possible with your movements and as efficient as possible with your energy consumption. So that's where I think DNS is a perfect marriage of how we should be showing our MMA and our combat athletes how to move because it's a sport that it keeps cycling between the stable and mobile paradigm or the, the, the yeah. bracing and respiration paradigm as well, where you need to be able to do both the only way to do both the best way possible is to be extremely efficient as both. And one of the best ways to be as e extremely efficient as both of those is to breathe correctly and expand and stabilize your trunk correctly. Right. And, and exactly you said, I think there's a lot of alignment between martial arts and a DNS-based approach because the breath work and the stability those are already intrinsic parts of martial arts, right? Who has ever learned 
martial arts without learning learning breathing that goes along with the techniques, mm-hmm. right? So we can utilize that breath, but then DNS gives us a lens of like, this is how to breathe, right? Not just exhale when you strike, right? It's like, this is how we stabilize and pressurize um, in that breath that we're using. Um, and then again, you, you articulated it very well as far as going back and forth between that. But I think it also works because in our martial arts mind, we're thinking of technical aspects of moves that are so kind of nuanced and intricate, the same way a lot of the DNS principles and movements are nuanced and intricate. Um, And not to say that, you know, we have to nerd out and explain our whole, you know, life journey in biomechanics or DNS or whatever when we're at the weight room. But I think it's important that to say, we've thought this deeply about the movement, just like you've thought this deeply about how I should rotate my wrists when I'm locking in a guillotine, right? Those lenses of specificity, I think, align as well. Well, it's, I actually mentioned this at the course, is I think this is a perfect way to introduce movement to skill coaches because it inherently makes sense. If you can explain it and you can show measurable results, it's going to inherently make sense. So an example I used at the course is our boxing coach at Fight Ready's name is Alan, um, amazing boxing coach, dude's a wizard. And he was inherently already stopping these athletes at end range of their punch and having them overload the isometric at end range to get stronger at the force transfer portion of the punch. Now, all I did was I came in there and I'm like, oh, I really like that drill. Like, how can we make this better? And I'm like, hey, Alan, do you care if I play around with this movement a little bit? He was already doing it. And I'm like, yeah, sure. Or he said, yeah, sure. So I did my thing and he was working with Bryce, one of my guys. Um, Shout out to Bryce. Still has that big Bellator elbow over the top. Fantastic knockout. But he just, he was in there, he was holding end range, but he was dipping into a little bit too much extension. He was squeezing everything together instead of expanding everything out in the low back. So I'm just like, Hey, like just follow my cues. I'm going to be hands-on. What I need you to do is at this end range, instead of trying to suck everything in, push everything out. And then I just uprighted his low back and that increased the output into Alan's hands by a good amount. So that right there, that buy-in, that immediate feedback shows the striking coach, oh, this shit makes sense. It shows the athlete, oh, this shit makes sense. And it gets buy-in on optimal movement is not, it, it might not be perfect for everything, right? That's where the pain science group comes in where not everybody moves the same. But for sport where we're chasing perfection, I feel like DNS kind of thrives because it allows us to focus on the optimal movement strategies that are going to be as efficient and effective as possible through our ipsilateral, contralateral, and homolog patterns, which are literally every piece of sport. Yeah. Yeah. And I think you, you bring up a really good point as far as it's contextually applicable, right? Like, um, whether you're doing a mid session, whether you're working on a physical therapy table, whether you're in a weight room, whether you're doing jujitsu, like um, you can apply the DNS principles and look at just human athletic movement period um, where I feel like some of the more nuanced approaches to movement, or I don't mean to say nuanced, but I mean different approaches to movements can be isolated or can only work, you know, in this context, or you're not going to be able to have, this type of stabilization strategy and it's not going to be as efficient 
when we're in a jujitsu setting where DNS, we can look at it and like we can use the same principles and it still applies in that context. So it's, right. it's uh, I use it all the time as in wrestling coaching. I, I use that concept. That's what's helped me transition into a relative, what I would call a relatively good wrestling coach is especially with the cage wrestling element. Like if I want to hold somebody on the cage, I'm not just going to dip through my low back, right? That's what they used to do back in the day that would hold people on the cage. But now there is so many more techniques of pushing left, moving right, fishtailing out. I'm going to fight the hands. I'm going to fight the underhook. There's a lot of variables. So we no longer can be lazy and just try to pressure forward through our low back. We need to stay rigid. We need to stay expanded. We need to transfer the force from our toes all the way up to our shoulder to pin that person against the cage and move on to my next attack. And the only way to do that is to be as stable through the low back as possible. Because if I decrease rigidity and I just arch my back, which decreases my rigidity, unfortunately, that's going to have a very negative effect of I'm not going to push as hard as I can. If I can't push or stabilize as much as I can, that person is most likely getting off the cage at the highest level. And if we want those athletes to be not just beating scrubs, but beating the athletes at the highest level, we have to do the little things correctly. And this is just one of those things, the DNS concepts of movement and expansion through the trunk and using these different patterns, one of those things that they do the little things right. And as Alex would like, we did bear position this weekend and we were holding a bear position, trying to upright through the T-spine and be able to stabilize everything. Holding that for 20 seconds sucks. That's so fucking hard. But holding that for 20 seconds, if we literally just change you going from the ground to going into a squat pattern, that's basically what you're doing when you're holding somebody against the cage, right? The only difference is I'm going to be in knee flexion versus knee extension, but the trunk is in the exact same position. My arms are close to a body lock position. I'm stable through the low back and I'm trying to upright and stay tall. If I can't do that, if I can't maintain that stability under just one force, which is gravity, how the fuck am I supposed to maintain that stability with a lot of forces, which is another human and a pliable cage right in front of me? Yeah. And the the way that my brain kind of goes on that is I think about like transferability, right? Like we, we, we talk all the time, like how does what we do in the weight room transfer to what we do in the cage? Um, and in this sense, it's not two distinct different things. Um, that's, I guess, I think more of the point I was trying to get at earlier. It's the same movement principles. Like I'm not going to teach, all right, here's your technique on a double leg. Here's different technique to do a squat, right? And it's not necessarily two different things. It's here's how you breathe and stabilize in a squat. It's the exact same way you breathe and stabilize when you're pushing somebody against a cage, right? So there's the highest amount of transferability from our strength training and our strength and conditioning sessions to our technical sessions and our tactical sessions. So again, that's, I think the biggest takeaway is the applicability of this in so many different contexts in the same guiding principles. Um, and now where I do struggle with that and when I think it's going to be a little hard, if your weight room context isn't that focused or zeroed in on movement period. Right. I yes. think a lot of high performance facilities are pretty zeroed in on movement and we want to see correct alignment in this and that. But I don't think a lot of contexts allow for, you know, practitioner to be hands on or to talk specifically about the breath or uh, spend like again at this weekend, we spent, you know, three hours in a bare position. Right. Mm-hmm. Versus in a weight room, maybe I got 
20 different things on my checklist. I got three minutes for that bear position. Now, again, you can get into the weeds of what you're prioritizing in this and that, but some context you have to change or um, you have to find out how to use this DNS lens into that context. Yeah. And a good way that I've applied it is if I'm working in a team setting is that I pick three major things that I think are going to make are, are the key points of the position. So say if we're doing bear position, the three main things I think of in bear position is uprighting through the spine, shoulder blade stability, typically scapular depression, and stacking the mouth floor over the thoracic diaphragm over the pelvic diaphragm. So it's lining up all three floors of the body. What I'm going to do is I'm going to bring everybody together. I'm going to say, hey, we're going to do bear position. I'm going to lay out my parameters. I'm going to have these athletes that are not going in a group of two trying to poke. I'm going to say, if they look like this, you poke here. If they look like this, you poke here. And I'm not going to like trust them to do it a hundred percent. Right. But it brings in the team element. It brings in the athletes being, I guess, into the movement and they're going to try to pinpoint everybody and they're going to try to make their friends better. So if I tell them, I'm like, Hey, if we're going to try to stack the floors on top of each other, a great way to do that is just push on their head and say, push into my hand. And as long as they push into their hand, there's really no wrong way they're going to do that. The only way to grow through the spine, the only way to elongate is to do it really one way. You're not going to get longer by doing it wrong, right? So it's a fail. It's almost like a fail-proof cue. I'm going to say, oh, okay, you just want to push on the bottoms of the shoulder blades. I'll point out this is a shoulder blade. You just push right here. Give it a little bit of pressure. Of course, you're always going to get the kids that are going to be dickheads and they're going to go too hard, right? That's always going to be a thing. But if we're working with elite athletes or if we're working with an elite group or like people were talking about trying to implement this in professional athletics, an easy way to get buy-in right there is that athlete has to understand what's going on because they're doing both the teaching role and the doing role. Immediately, you understand that position more because as soon as you push on a shoulder blade, you get to see what happens. And as soon as somebody pushes on your shoulder blade, you get to feel what happens. So they know what's going on. They understand the application and they're going to apply it better. So that's how, that's an easy way for me where a lot of people they go at DNS about the, the ability to increase scaling or to do it in a large group, like a football team. And what I tell those people most of the time is just be more creative and suck less <laughs> because it's DNS is hard, right? Not everybody can do it, but the people that do it change the way their athletes move. So are you willing to put the time in and figure out how to implement this into your system? Not take the system, but implement this into your system. Or are you going to say, oh, this doesn't work and just completely throw it out when we see people that do this well, like the people in the Czech Republic that implement it at scales of 20 to a team, 50 to a team, 100 to a team, extremely easily, just because they understand and they took the time to figure out how it works in their system. Yeah, I like that a lot as far as scalability goes. Um Taking many DNS courses, Austin, kind of almost like revisiting a level one DNS course this weekend. What was one of your biggest takeaways? Um, it, I mean, the big thing for me is anytime I get one of the Czech therapists there, I try to listen to 
anything and everything they say because they just practice medicine over there completely differently. They have such a better exam than we do. They they can pick up on the small fine-tuned details of the body better than we do because it's it's emphasized more in their education. Um, so the major thing that I got from Jakob was really focusing on the zones of support and overemphasizing having that alignment as perfect as possible before we try to push that person through a movement. And what I mean by that is don't set them up for failure, set them up for success essentially. So he would overemphasize every single time he showed a different position of step one, zone of support, step one, zone of support. And he kept saying that over and over and over again that weekend. And it made me realize that my step one is just walking through the steps with the athlete. I'm not actually checking the zones of support that I'm doing. I'm just trusting them to use the words that I'm saying as efficiently as possible and it, or as, as best as they can. And as long as it looks somewhat okay, I'm cool with it. Yeah. But I watched him like apply pressure and have them just a minor difference apply pressure and lock in that zone of support. And it completely changed the outcome of the, of the person that he was working on exercise. It went from a pec exercise to a shoulder blade or a scapular depression exercise based off of just one minor change to the zone of support of the hand. And that was really the light bulb for me where I'm like, Oh, I need to be even more picky than I am when I'm doing one-on-one -on -one work. That being said, bringing it back to the team application, you can't be that picky with a team. And that's okay because 90% of this is and, and is better than 100% of something else in some certain aspects, right? So doing the bare position 90% correctly is still going to have a massive benefit for your athlete. But if I'm going to be one-on-one -on -one and I'm focusing on trying to make it the best I can, I need to be a little bit more picky with what I'm looking at. Yeah, that was a big point, like you said, that you check the zone of support, and I, I picked that up on the foot loading too. That like a lot of times, if you get that individual thing correctly, excuse me, everything else will, for better or worse, fall in line. Right. So you have less work to do later on up the chain, and then you don't have to change one thing. Then another thing changes. Then you go back and forth. So if we get really solidly fixed the first step, then the next few steps get sequentially easier. Um, not that they're easy at all, but um, I think that that was a, a big takeaway as well is like make sure your initial um, intervention or your initial check and queuing is at a hundred percent. What's cool is how do we we can literally just take that transfer right into MMA, right? If we're talking about foot zones of support, if you're just pushing through the big toe, you're just pivoting on the big toe as opposed to making a wide toe box and and loading through the entire forefoot guess what? That's not as stable. If you don't have something that is supposed to be transmitting force as stable, that is not going to transmit as much force, right? Everything pivots over the top of something. You need to be rigid in order to transfer force. So that DNS concept of being able to have a zone of support and really emphasizing that as a main part of a movement isn't just for the little baby positions. It transfers into your squat extremely heavily. If you watch somebody squat barefoot and they're not wearing cheater lifter shoes, it's completely different if they don't focus on the stability aspect of what they're doing and they don't focus on trying to spread their foot and increasing zone of support. If you watch somebody wrestle and they're like MMA wrestling barefoot and they try to push off and they're only pushing off through their big toe, they're not going to have as much power driving into that person as if they pushed off of a more stable forefoot. 
right? It's just not going to happen. Same with striking. If all you're doing is pivoting over a big toe and not pivoting over a forefoot and trying to stay stable through that, you're not going to transmit as much force. So this is one of those things that even though some techniques are have been taught some way for forever, it makes a lot of sense to just take these different biomechanical advantages and try to apply them into what you're doing. And you don't have to do it immediately, right? You're not going to change your entire style right away. But if you start to do it right and you try to do it right a little bit more, not necessarily right, but efficient a little bit more, it can have a good benefit moving forward where the more reps you do, the more it's going to translate. Right. And, and as you've said before, too, the, the downside of this is it takes so long to get from learning movement patterns to applying them in an MMA setting. Yes. Right. Because if you know me, you know, I'm always on the run up early and home late. So having a three hour morning routine isn't really in the cards for me. What is in the cards is AG1. It's a fast way to get vitamins and minerals I need to perform. I first gave AG1 a try because it was, I wanted a single solution that helps support my entire body by filling in nutrient gaps and simplifying my morning routine. Since drinking AG1 daily, I've always felt strong and energized and ready to attack the day. Not only does AG1 deliver my daily dose of vitamins, minerals, pre- and probiotics, and more, it's a powerful, healthy habit that's also powerfully simple. It's one scoop, mixed in water, once a day, and every day. I know that AG1 is giving my body high-quality nutrition. Every batch of AG1 goes through a rigorous testing process, so you know that it's safe. And AG1 ingredients are sourced for absorption, potency, and nutrition density. AG1 is a supplement that I trust to provide the support my body needs daily, and that's why I'm excited to welcome them as a new partner. Here is your chance to start every day this season with a gift to yourself. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3K2 and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com slash provengrit. That's drinkag1.com slash provengrit. Check it out. If you know me, you know I'm always on the run up early and home late. So having a three hour morning routine isn't really in the cards for me. What is in the cards is AG1. It's a fast way to get vitamins and minerals I need to perform. I first gave AG1 a try because it was, I wanted a single solution that helps support my entire body by filling in nutrient gaps and simplifying my morning routine. Since drinking AG1 daily, I've always felt strong and energized and ready to attack the day. Not only does AG1 deliver my daily dose of vitamins, minerals, pre- and probiotics, and more, it's a powerful, healthy habit that's also powerfully simple. It's one scoop, mixed in water, once a day, and every day. I know that AG1 is giving my body high-quality nutrition. Every batch of AG1 goes through a rigorous testing process, so you know that it's safe. And AG1 ingredients are sourced for absorption, potency, and nutrition density. AG1 is a supplement that I trust to provide the support my body needs daily, and that's why I'm excited to welcome them as a new partner. Here is your chance to start every day this season with a gift to yourself. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3K2 and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com slash provengrit. That's drinkag1.com slash provengrit. Check it out. It's essentially relearning motor patterns, right? And it, it takes a long time to either correct or change 
like neurology in your body. So I've been taught to shoot a single leg this way. And then I get really good at that thing. Now I'm going to teach you a little bit different, but not that different, but you have to be consciously competent or consciously uh, incompetent every time you do it. It takes a while to build up and kind of relearn that pattern or reestablish it. So I think that necessitates a longer transition, but on the same hand, one other thing we talked about this weekend a lot, um, just because you're not doing a hundred percent perfectly and you know, with joint centration, with those breast stabilizer, whatever, doesn't mean that you can't do it effectively or at a high level, right? Mm-hmm. We want to be trending towards the, the better movement strategy towards utilizing DNS in our MMA striking, but that doesn't mean we can't start striking or we can't, or that we have 100%. to stop striking. Right. So it's like, it's a continual progression as you go through, not necessarily shit. We have to rebuild everything right now and you can't fight until we get things rebuilt. Right. All it's right. a, it's a on the fly process, which I know may seem straightforward, simple, but it's also like, you know, if I don't have my shit straight, should I keep going? But yes, you should keep going because you know how to throw a combination regardless of DNS. Right. I mean, I feel like this is, this is one of those courses where people can take it too far. This course, unfortunately, like I've had buddies that have fallen trapped to this, that they take a DNS course and they won't let somebody progress unless the movement is a hundred percent perfect. And that's the opposite effect of what we're trying to get here. We're trying to increase the exposure to good patterns. That's it, right? If I try to push it past where everything has to be perfect at all points in time, that's not athletics and that's not MMA. MMA is a clusterfuck. That's the best way I can describe this sport is a clusterfuck. And the only way that, yeah. And the only way that I want my athletes to move is efficient. I'm going to try to push them towards the path of what I think is the most efficient as possible, but I'm not going to stop them from going to wrestling just because they're driving through their big toe or they're arching their low back. I am going to say something in the right context. So as long as we're not in camp and as long as we're not close to a fight, I'll probably say something if I go to wrestling practice and be like, Hey, let's focus on this. Just stop. Let's do some breathing here. Let's make it an isometric movement, train this stability pattern. Cause the more breaths you take, that's just reps. And then from there, try to do it a little bit better. But that doesn't mean I am going to completely uproot everything they've learned since they were fucking six years old if they were an Olympic wrestler, because that's going to get zero by him. <laughs> that is going to make an athlete say, you don't know what the fuck you're talking about because I went to the Olympics for this shit. Yeah, right. Absolutely. And, that, and then you come off as arrogant and then you don't create a good relationship. Um, but I kind of wanted to pivot. I just talked about how long it takes to apply something to or apply the DNS principles into striking. I want to talk about something that we really hit on this weekend that I think happens, you know, naturally or happens a little bit more fluidly as we specifically grapple. But I think in MMA period is we talked about our stabilization through our breath and stabilizing as much as we can, but as little as we need to. Right. And so you're kind of matching pressure with the force that you need to create there. I think this happens so automatically when you wrestle, right? You meet the opposing force of the opponent Mm -hmm. with how much you need to stabilize and brace 
and then you're in a split second onto the next position where you need to stabilize an appropriate amount. And then you're onto the next position where you need to stabilize an appropriate amount. And then we get points scored on you or points you score when somebody surprises somebody, right? When we hit, you know, a three shot fake or we set something up into a big throw. When I surprise you and you're not as stable as you need to be, that's when I'm going to score and get the advantage. So I see that principle of stabilizing just enough happen constantly throughout a wrestling match or constantly throughout a grappling exchange. Well, I think the ability to trade off respiration rate and bracing intensity is the most valuable skill that a movement professional strength conditioning or healthcare can impart into an athlete. I think that is the number one key determinant in gassing out is if you overbrace, if you're hulky and you just make your every movement you do is labored, that takes a lot a lot of energy. And if you can't brace it all, you're going to have zero pop and zero power to transmit any force through the opponent in front of you. You might have the best gas take in the world. You might not get tired at all, but guess what? You didn't win that fight because you weren't able to transmit any of the force you generated through the opponent and being able to cycle or to toggle between the two and getting the right percent of bracing is an extremely crucial strategy to going up and up and up the ladder, especially when you go from three round fights to five round fights. Well, and you, you said it there too, the, what affects the bracing ability is the breath rate, right? What accelerates or decelerates your breath rate, your nervous system, right? Going into the fight, there's so many different nerves, mentalities, nerves going on. If you're again, and this is why sparring in the cage, I think is so valuable because the more you get familiarized with the cage, the less you're, jacked up and sympathetic in your nervous system the more calm your breath rate can be the more you have you know a little bit of you know subconscious or or conscious control over your bracing strategies right so th that's what i see when we when i watch sparring and I, when we like to think of like is this guy in good shape is it did he gas out in his sparring rounds it's like 90 uh, maybe 90s a lot but 90 percent of the time it's because they're too adrenaline focused and jacked up. It's not because they're out of shape. It's not because they haven't put the work in. It's because their nervous system is running like hell. Breath rate can't keep up. Bracing strategies are all over the place. Gassed out. Yep. And it's, I mean, it's, I feel like that's one of those balancing acts, just like respiration rate and bracing intensity, where you want that athlete to be jacked up to go into the fight, but you don't want them to be too jacked up or to be too fight or flight that they just have an adrenaline dump right when they get in there, right? You want them to be ready because no matter what, you're still getting into a fight. That's the first word or fight of, of fight or flight. But you don't want them to be so far down in the spectrum that they just gas, right? Or they, they just shut down essentially. So this is where the breath work and this is where the I like when my athletes do DNS movements as a part of their warmup. I think it's one of the, like the, the stupid little baby positions that everybody laughs at, but work extremely well. This is where they have their best benefits is doing it as a flow instead of like a yoga flow, doing a DNS flow in movements that they're extremely competent with for five to eight minutes and just flowing through the different patterns and focusing on their breath as they go. It's movement, it's prepping joints, it's prepping tissue, it's allowing you to open up and feel more mobile, but we're also activating the diaphragm in an extremely efficient way because of the thoracic diaphragm being stacked over the pelvic diaphragm. 
And it allows us to, if we increase diaphragm activation, we decrease fight or flight response. So it tries to normalize out that over anxious athlete that's in the back about to make their first UFC walk. Yeah, absolutely. So I like, I like teaching like starting the breath during camp, like at the beginning before camp, hopefully, but b- during camp and then trying to find two to three movements that I trust them in. It doesn't have to be DNS. Just, that's the cool part is I can take a DNS bracing strategy and put it into our sideline shoulder sweep assessment. I can take a DNS bracing strategy and I can put it into a prisoner T-spine rotation, something that I trust that they can flow through the next movement. Like I actually combine a lot of DNS bracing movements or bracing strategies with animal flow movements because they seem to flow a little bit better or be more intuitive to athletes um, just because they're primal movements. So I'll take that stacking of the diaphragm and trying to maintain that position and I'll throw them in like a crab reach and not have them overarch the lumbar spine to get to the peak of the movement, have them stay stable and just reach up moving through a stable block. Um, or I'll have them throw them into a sideline shoulder sweep, but not overarch the low back to get to the end of the movement. Right? So it's a cool way to play with the athletes neuro or neurology and play with it in a way that is going to benefit them heading into competition. Cause you're not just priming movements. You're also decreasing nerves. Yeah. And I, uh, taking it out of the, um, fight or warm up scenario. I like the, the movement flows that we did specifically because we teach the bracing strategy in such tight controlled positions. And I know there's a purpose for that and you have to do that as kind of your step one. Right. But it allows you to feel the bracing strategy as you go through those like transitional periods. And like Mm -hmm. you feel your core and your breath and your diaphragm be really that solid block or that, that glue that sticks stability in the middle of like, for instance, we went from like a bear position and then we sat back into like a low squat without changing our diaphragm position or from like our neck to our hips, right? We were bracing and and breathing in in a correct fashion, hopefully. Um, But you felt that as you rock back on your heels, they're still bracing there, right? You can get tight there and it does happen in athletics, right? It happens all the time in a wrestling match where you're in that low squat and then you're expected to brace, right? Think about somebody shooting in, uh, two people shooting at the same time, right? There's Mm -hmm. bracing that happens there, right? So in those kind of sticky positions, the solid breath and diaphragm activation can be like your glue that disallows you from losing position. Yeah. The person that can turn on their brace faster in that situation where you both shoot the same time will win that exchange 10 times out of 10. Or even keeps their brace in the aftermath of that, right? Because like as soon as you collide and you both shoot the same times, whoever can activate a harder, better brace, right? And then the reaction movement, if I stay braced versus the other person losing position, I'm more likely going to win. Yeah. So we talked about this in a whole podcast, but something that Rich talks about in this course specifically and where I got the concept originally was functional capacity. Alex, what's functional capacity for the people that didn't listen to our podcast on it? It's, uh, it's how long you can correctly maintain, you know, it's going to sound super strength coachy, your form as you lift, right? How long can you efficiently keep moving through? So it's your maximum efficient threshold, right? So example, if we're doing a trap bar deadlift and let's say I'm doing it with 225 on the bar, I get to rep, you know, 16, 17, right? I can still pick the weight up 
but maybe I start to change how I'm doing that, right? That's the end of my functional capacity, and then we're dipping into something called absolute capacity, right? So functional capacity is how well or how long you can maintain efficient bracing and breathing and joint centration and DNS principles um, in your movement. So on the flip side of that, Austin, can you explain absolute capacity to people? You know, I got you. You know, I got you. It's how much can you do? So how much weight can you lift? How much can you expend your energy? How hard can you actually push? That is going to be your absolute capacity. I don't give a fuck if you do it right. It's just how much weight can you lift off the ground or how hard can you push in like a air bike sprint? I, I, it's, it is the stereotypical strength coach metric of lift as much weight as possible. And I kind of care about your form, but I really care a lot more that you're just lifting a fuck ton of weight off the ground. That's absolute capacity. And where the rubber meets the road is when our functional capacity is as close as possible to our absolute capacity that decreases our injury risk that increases our ability of sports transfer. And it allows for us to be in a safer environment while we're training at high end metrics. So we're training at high end power, high end strength or high end speed. Right. Um, And I think functional capacity is super important to train, right? Because as a strength coach, I'm looking at performance metrics and outputs, right? Performance metrics and outputs are absolute capacities. They're not functional capacities. So if I'm trying to get an athlete stronger and genuinely stronger, I can't stay within my functional capacity, right? So I'm always going to dip into the absolute capacity, but Mm -hmm. how risky is that is the question you can address with your functional capacity. Well, I think it's a, a, it kind of goes down to all of DNS is a give and a take, right? It's we need to focus on the functional capacity. We can't just ignore that. But we know if we want to make those top end gains, if we want to increase our athletes ceiling as much as possible, we have to dive into the absolute capacity portion of the bar graph as well. We know that those both are going to both increase at the same time. It's just a matter of how much is one going to increase? Are my only training at the absolute capacity? Well, then most likely my functional capacity is going to stay exactly where it's at. And my absolute capacity is going to go up, increasing the functional to absolute gap, thus increasing the, I guess, injury risk rate and increasing the risk of the shit that I'm doing in the weight room is not going to transfer into sport as well. Because we know if we can maintain a function and maintain a brace, that it's going to transfer into sport better. It has a higher transferability. Versus if we dip into absolute capacity, say we have, if we're doing a conjugate system, we have max effort strength. If we're, say we're doing a three day a week, we have max effort strength one day. But then we're focusing on dynamic effort and we're focusing on, um, and a correctives and trunk stability and a functional capacity model for the other portions of our conjugate system. That allows me to have a more of a transfer. And it also allows me to mitigate any sort of injury risk where like, say we're doing a uh, absolute capacity trap bar deadlift. I need you to maintain as good a form as possible, but I actually care more that you lift a fuck ton of weight because I need to make that athlete as strong as possible because they're going into a grappling battle with Gordon Ryan. Cool. I need to increase their absolute capacity. But what I can do is the other exercises that I choose for that day after that one max effort, absolute capacity workout, or I guess block 
are going to be functional capacity oriented to now that I got my absolute strength stimulus, how can I layer that in with a fuck ton of proper respiration, a fuck ton of proper stability, a fuck ton of good biomechanically efficient movements that are going to transfer a little bit better. So if I train those two together, that in and of itself is kind of a conjugate style where I'm doing absolute capacity, functional capacity in the same setting. And that's just a different way in my mind that when I program that I can do a conjugate system where it's absolute capacity for one or two exercises, functional capacity for the rest. Yeah, no, I think that's very applicable. And then I think uh, I was thinking of ways to do that. Sorry, guys. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but I wonder. Well, so, an e- so an easy the- example. So I, cause I do this all the time. That's literally, that's one of the main lenses that I do this in. So an easy example would be, we're going to do a max effort landmine press. It's a relatively joint specific or a joint safe exercise that I can load while it is going to take a toll on the body. I can load this up as high as I can go. And there's relatively low risk of injury. Okay. So we'll do absolute capacity of our landmine presses. And while I want them to maintain proper trunk stability and proper positioning, I need them to get as much weight up on that bar as possible. Then I can pair in a dead bug floor press with, uh, and that'll be my, so the A block is, we'll say maybe an EMOM every minute on the minute, you're doing three to four landmine presses at 90%. So they're getting a lack of, um, a lack of recovery. Boom. Then my next block could be if I'm sticking with a pressing model, I can do a dead bug floor press where we're focusing on the trunk stability. So that's more functional capacity. We're going to go until that as heavy until that athlete starts to arch their back during their press. I can pair that up with a trunk corrective of maybe like a, a dead bug payoff press where we're focusing on the trunk stability, but also focusing on an anti-rotation movement. And then if we're focusing on the trunk being the main movement around everything, and it's just a pressing variation, then I can potentially go into a, let's do a hamstring um, rollout with the Sorenex roller. But we're focusing on them maintaining that trunk stability element, and I don't want them to overarch at the top because that's one of those exercises that is extremely prone to excess extension. So the main movement of their work is integrating, uh, I guess, anti-extension into their movements, increasing the functional capacity while under a press format. Yeah, that makes sense to me. There was a lot of internal alarm bells ringing about like that's not absolute that's not max effort model because you know when i think max effort i think of like your typical west side program where they're literally fucking maxing out 10 sets of one yeah i know and and our athletes aren't power lifters so that's that's why i switched so that's why i switched it to absolute capacity (laughs) right so i think that's where that's where you can get away with it right And, and transfer it to athletes so it makes a lot of sense. I mean, it's something I already do, but I, I just, I guess I was tripped up on the words of the max effort versus absolute capacity uh, models, but no, I, I like that program a lot. And I think you can really benefit your athlete by, you know, in a realistic lens, like still attacking absolute capacity in a concurrent lens, right? Because you're still working on multiple uh, adaptations at once. So, but no, it works. It works, and I enjoyed the DNS course this whole last weekend. It was uh, a little bit specific at times for me. I don't know when the last time I got really that in-depth into one position or or, um, 
one stabilization strategy, but I, I enjoyed the the scale of it because it was a change up and because it gives me something to apply. Yeah. And I would say for the people that are listening, um, I mean, I just did a quick little blurb for Rich today. He was in town, he was in Scottsdale. So I did a little, uh, I guess, video testimonial for him, but I'll say the same thing here. DNS strength training one was the course that made everything kind of make sense for me. It was, it is the reason I'll, I'll give him a lot of credit. It's the reason why I was able to become a better strength coach and try to fill that role for my athletes. So I'd highly recommend it. And I'd highly recommend, even if it's boring at first, because it's a lot of just fucking breathing, the exercise one, exercise two, strength and conditioning lens, all of those pair really well. The rubber really hits the road when you understand the concepts of one and then start taking exercise two, because that's where you start to get into rotation. And especially for combat athletes, that's where it all really makes sense. Cause you can try to pick out the rotation patterns of your athletes and see where they're faulty. And it's almost like, it's almost like a cheat code. Cause I can watch an athlete hit a bag and I know where their power lie. I, I know where their power leaks are a hundred percent. I can watch them hit a bag. It doesn't even have to be slow-mo. And I know exactly where their power leaks are because I understand the concepts of ipsilateral rotation and contralateral stability. So, but that is my glowing recommendation. If you guys got to get in touch with us, all of our information is in the show notes. That's going to be emails and Instagrams. Um, if you guys have any questions, send them to Alex. I don't want to, I don't want to answer them. <laughs> no, uh, send them on over. Uh, we have programs available for sale at buildingafighter.com. That's going to be custom programs, memberships, which are going to be a three week program that auto recurs as well as pre-made month long programs. So hit those up at buildingafighter.com. This is Dr. Austin Shane, Alex Friedman, and we are out. Out.